Well, good morning, guys. It's, uh, I have to tell you, after recording our lectionary conversation for this week last night, I did not anticipate seeing both of you so soon. You sound overjoyed that you have the chance to see us again so soon. That's a theme in these conversations, isn't it, Bill? His, his overjoyedness. You sound overjoyed said to Chris Brewer has actually never been said by anyone ever until just <laughs> and let it be noted that it was said ironically it was said ironically by someone who also isn't necessarily considered super overjoyed you love rainy yeah. in the winter no that but that I get overjoyed about things other people find dreary and depressing but I do get overjoyed I don't think we call that joy, but that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> well, fair warning, guys. I am, I am with Ollie for most of the morning. So if I just suddenly step away, just know my my sleeping three month old has has awakened. Um, Bill, I have to ask before we get going, what's the uh, what is the Yankee candle scent? For you this morning in the office a i will not be mocked for this i will not allow it to happen i have agents <laughs> and i will not be mocked for my choices okay. i uh the september's yankee candle scent is crisp fall night oh which isn't really a fall scent it kind of almost smells like cologne ish mm. But you can't you can't jump in, in in New York anyway. You can't jump into like deep fall scents until October. So like Chris Fall Night is like sort of like like a nice transitional candle for the season. Transitional candle, perfect. Okay, good. You got it down to a science, man. Or I guess the good folks at Yankee Candle do. I wonder what James K. A. Smith would say about my liturgies. He'd probably write a fourth book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it would be, yeah, it would probably have to come with a label, you know, a warning label, that fourth book. Or like N.T. Wright. Advisory. NT or N.T. Wright has written one already. He heard about it this morning and he's written one since then. <laughs> exactly Yankee right. Candles and the Gospel or something. <laughs> <done>. <laughs> That's right. So, Bill, I know that you are focusing on... The gospel passages this season until the end of this kind of uh, church calendar, liturgical calendar year. So, weigh in a little bit on that for us. What are you? What do you? What do you see in here in Luke sixteen? Yeah, like so. This year's been fun because you com I committed to doing the gospel every Sunday, uh, pretty much exclusively, and you turn every Monday, you turn there and you're like, okay, you know, uh, you know, parable of the lost sheep, you know, that, that's going to be encouraging or something like that. Lately, you know, unless you hate your mother and father, I came to bring division. And now you have the parable of the dishonest manager where, you know, I think uh, everything about the way that I grew up in church and uh, coming off of trying to come off of a literalist reading of the text this parable just makes the mind scrambled eggs. It's, it's hard to know which way is up or down uh, in a parable like this. So I was talking to another priest in the CEC, uh, Father Preston, who also does lectionary conversations once a week with like a whole bunch of other pastors. And I texted him and said, sorry, I couldn't make it. 
how what was the vibe talking about the gospel and and he said all you need to know is nobody left satisfied today and i was like darn it like i was hoping there would be an answer so hopefully with the good doctor chris green here we could get someplace actually that's the place you want to get everyone dissatisfied like that is that's the goal like oh that's good i think we've been perfect well we meet that goal every week yeah (laughs) absolutely it doesn't get i mean it doesn't get any better right i mean it's you you have the new testament right the epistle text from first timothy 2 starts off with first of all i urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone for kings and for all who are in high positions all right so there's the new testament reading depending on which track you do track one or two old testament text amos eight hear this you who trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land (laughs) then jerob or if you want to do track one jeremiah my joy is gone grief is upon me my heart is sick hark the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land so i'm interested to see where we'll go yeah, let's let's come to the gospel text last. I think it'd be good to to talk about these these other texts, beginning with the point you just made, Brew. That there seems to be a tension. I mean, the the prophets are talking about the poor and on behalf of the poor, crying out in in grief and and even in anger. And the apostolic text, right, is is praying for those people in power who are taking advantage of the poor. So how, how do we how do we hear that in ways that are gospel? How, it, it would be easy to dismiss that as some kind of contradiction. I think that would be a mistake. But how, how do we understand the relationship between that prayer for those who are in power and prayer on behalf of those who are crushed, who are powerless because they've been overpowered? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, Chris, can you just mention that we recorded this yesterday and maybe, and we're doing it a second time here. Yeah. yeah. Either yeah, we recorded last night, as Bruce said, and somehow I messed that up. So we're, so we're this is a redo. And one of the things this morning, like I said, I've been doing the New Zealand prayer book, um, this, this year. And I wanted to read this, listen to this progression after we pray the Our Father. I think it kind of gets at the combination of the Amos and Jeremiah texts with the Timothy text. It says this, and I think the progression is very important. Make your ways known upon earth, O God, your saving power among all peoples. So it starts with that. Make your ways known. The next thing you pray is renew your church in holiness and help us to serve you with joy. So his way, we pray for his ways to be made known. And the next thing we pray for is that the church who essentially bears that responsibility to make his ways known, yeah. pray that the church is renewed and that we, we joyfully serve. And then this is really cool. It says, guide the leaders of this and every nation that justice may prevail throughout the world. So there, yeah. there's the prayer from Timothy. Mm-hmm. The next prayer is, let not the needy, O God, be forgotten nor the hope of the poor be taken away. And so there's this sense in which we're going to pray for our leaders, but, but there's also the sense in which that when we do, the needy will still be forgotten. 
Mm. Right. And so it's not like this guarantee where if we pray for our leaders, they'll automatically change. The onus is still on the church here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and one of the things we said yesterday was, I think it's when we pray for our leaders, it says that we'll live a quiet and peaceable life. I don't know that that is only because they'll change. I think when the church is praying priestly and -hmm. creating a space for prayer, like Jesus created a space for prayer when he flipped tables, like when we make that space, the church becomes a place that is quiet and peaceable in the midst of a world where leaders are forgetting the needy. Yes. And right. Exactly. I I think that's a really astute. That's the New Zealand prayer book you said. It's the New Zealand prayer book. And then the final prayer after that is make us instruments of your peace, which is what Timothy is saying. Mm -hmm. So we pray for our leaders. That's a long shot. (laughs) I think we can all agree. (laughs) It's our job to not forget the needy because they probably will. And then it's make us instruments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that progression is the Timothy progression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what that does is show that there is not a contradiction between the apostolic direction, pray for those in power, kings and those in power, and the the prophetic groaning that we hear in Jeremiah and, and Amos. I think everything depends on how we pray and what we pray for our leaders, right? And praying for them to be established so that our will will be done mm. is unfaithful prayer, right? Praying that they will be established so that their will would be done is unfaithful, but praying that they would be established so that God's will can be done. That, that is, as you're saying, that's a, that, that onus is on us as, as people of prayer, as, as intercessors, people who've had room made for us by Jesus have to make that room for others. I like that's think that's why it starts with renew the church in holiness. Like I need to be, we need to be renewed in holiness so that when we pray for our leaders, we're not praying for quote unquote, our guy to get in. Mm-hmm. We're praying real Jesus prayers that essentially are against our leaders for our leaders. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, a, that's such a, a good way of thinking about Christian relationship to power, cultural, social, economic, political power. We'll come to this theme when we get to the gospel, but this, how, how do we live in the world in ways that are true to the spirit, true to the, the dynamics of another kingdom without rejecting our responsibilities or shirking our responsibilities for our neighbor? I, there's, a, there's a passage in Bonifer's Ethics. I mentioned this last night. I found the passage I want to, to read where he, he talks about the, the need for Christians to be grounded in reality, and he, he critiques kind of two, in, in broad strokes, two distortions of the faith. One he calls compromise, and one he calls radicalism. And he, he sums this up. Let me just jump in here. I'm, I'm skipping a few lines, but this is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Ethics in the chapter on Ultimate and Penultimate. He says, what is serious is not some kind of Christianity, not the idea of a pure Christianity, but Jesus Christ himself. In Jesus Christ, God's reality and human reality take the place of radicalism and compromise. So where where we are present to Jesus and Jesus is present in us, then we are living the life God means us to live. And that's something distinct from either radicalism or compromise. But radicalism, he says, 
arises from a conscious or unconscious hatred of what exists. It's an attempt to get out of the world as we know it. And I think that's a kind of magical thinking. Compromise, however, arises from hatred of the ultimate. So what you have here is a kind of otherworldly Christianity that wants nothing to do with power, that wants nothing to do with the systems of the world and the ways of the world. And then you've got another kind of Christianity that wants very much to be at work in the world, but hates the ways in which God's commands, God's desires interferes with that control. And so then he offers this kind of summing up. Radicalism hates time. Compromise hates eternity. Radicalism hates patience. Compromise hates decision. Radicalism hates wisdom. Compromise hates simplicity. Radicalism hates measure. Compromise hates the immeasurable. Radicalism hates the real. Compromise hates the word. And I think what's striking to me when every time I read this passage is that I think the Christianity that shaped me, the Christianity that's still dominant in the world that I live in, move in, is one that is both radical and compromised, depending on what the issue is, what time of year it is, who's speaking, there are ways in which we veer back and forth, right? Sometimes we sound like radicals amongst radicals, and sometimes we're ready to compromise. And, and yet both, as Bonifer says, are unreal. They're not tied to what it is that Jesus is actually doing in the world. And that leads us, right, either to pray that Timothy prayer. When we pray for those in power, we're praying without a heart for the poor. We're praying because we want our way of life preserved or secured. Or we refuse to pray for those in power at all. We pray without a heart for those in power, out of some sense of anger on behalf of those who are oppressed. And I, I think what, what we get from the readings this week is this sense that we, we cannot divorce ourselves from the working of power in the world. I mean, that's Boniface's point, right? You cannot enact your responsibility to your neighbor if you shirk all responsibility to engage with the powers but you have to engage them in the spirit of Jesus, which is a spirit that celebrates, it's a poverty of spirit. It's a spirit that identifies with the least of these. Um, yeah, there's a lot here. I mean, I think just looking at that, at that Timothy passage, of course, it's make these prayers intercessions for kings and those who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet, peaceable life in all godliness and dignity, right? That recognition that this is, I mean, this is no less a prayer for, to use the language in Jeremiah and Amos, right? The, the lowly and the needy. Um, I wonder then, Chris, if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, because part of what I'm super interested in is the kind of, in the prophetic texts, this identification with the needy in their suffering. And I think I've not, I've not heard that talked about a lot very well, because I think the kind of suffering with, you know, especially coming from um, communities who don't know that kind of suffering or the kind of suffering that we imagine um, mm -hmm. when we hear these passages it almost was a, I think I heard it 
a lot of times in ways that didn't actually recognize the otherness of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are lowly. Yeah, I think since Bonhoeffer's on my mind, I'll, I'll reference him again. In ways in which he says our relationship to each other is always mediated by Jesus. So the Timothy text this week says that Christ is the mediator. Right? Christ is the one mediator between God and humanity. And one of the dimensions of that revelation is that my relationship to you is always mediated through Jesus and his relationship to you. I always know you as someone who's in Christ and in whom Christ lives and moves and has his being. So that what that means is I can never be inside your experience. I can never know what you know as you know it, and I can ne therefore never replace you. I can never speak in ways that silence you. That, that would be possession. I mean, that's what demons do, right? Demons possess and displace persons. But what we're called to do is come alongside people. We're called to compassion, right? We're called to, to a kind of paraclesis where we come alongside people in, in their sorrow, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. If you look at the Jeremiah text, he says this pretty explicitly. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. Listen, the cry of my poor people from far and wide in the land, right? So he's already made this distinction between himself. He's named his own grief, his own sickness, but he's hearing the cry of other people. And what are they crying? Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? And then he hears as, as if it is as if he hears God's response to that. Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? Right? And then he hears them again, the, the poor. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. So it's, it's what Jeremiah is doing is positioning himself here between God and the people, and he's hearing both of them. It's a very priestly position, right? The, the position of the prophet. And then Jeremiah says, for the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. Now, I think what's striking about that, just to your point, Chris, is that he's not claiming to hurt in the same way that they're hurting. And he's certainly not claiming to know what their hurt is, to, to know how it feels. But he is able to be moved by what moves them but he's sensitive to the fact that they are hurting and he, and he's hurting for their hurt. And, and that seems to me, there, there's a kind of health there, a, a kind of, what's the word? Yeah, healthy differentiation between Jeremiah and what he knows and those who are suffering. And I, I think in moments in which we get carried away with our feelings about the injustices we witness, we sometimes can wrongly identify with the suffering, just as at other times we can wrongly identify with those in power. And what God actually gives us through the mediation of Jesus is that distinct is that distinction. I am myself, I'm not you. And the only way that I can honor what it is that God is doing in you is to honor that difference between what I know and what you know, between my experience and your experience. And, and recognize that much of what's happening in you, almost all of what is happening in you, is out of my hands, out beyond my reach. And yet I can be there beside you, with you, right? And 
that my experience of you and my experience of God does not have to displace you and your experience of me or of God. And that looks, I guess, like a, I'm hurt by your hurting. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think because, that's because you're being hurt. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then there's that cry, is there no bomb in Gilead, right? Like this sense of, I know there is, I know there is a bomb in Gilead, but why are, why are people hurting? And so now he's interceding. So he moves from, from, in a sense, overhearing the cry of the hearts of the people, the cry of God into this place of compassion. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in my experience, um, just speaking with and trying to, you know, pastor a number of people for a little bit now, Mm. there seems to be, we seem to not know how to handle resolve or unresolve very well. Like this seems to be something that we're not very good at. And there seems to be like, to, to oversimplify two polarized groups where you have this one, this one group that is very much naively optimistic. Yes. And they will just constantly confess their blessings and talk about how good the world is. And they'll never, especially in their own life, they'll never mention anything about a season of unhealth or an area where they need to repent or you know, something where God is working in their life and they're coming along a little slower than they want to. Like they never confess any sort of negativity. And these tend to be the people who, when it comes to things like social justice, either pretend that there are no real issues and it's a fabrication, or they jump right into, this is hopeless anyway, there's nothing to do. Right. No, that's, and that's exactly what Bonifer means by radicalism. Yeah. So what I was calling otherworldly magical thinking that's what he's labeling radicalism. So I, I completely agree. I think that a lot of us are, we are, we're controlled by that, that sense of these problems are too much for us. God will take care of it. Or they're not even really problems at all. Those are just two ways of ta- of shirking responsibility for our neighbor. Yeah. I think it was um, Richard Sibbs who said that whenever you read the prophetic texts, it's not, it's telling you two things. It's telling you what how God wants us to see, and the method by which he wants us to work. Mm. And so when I listen to Jeremiah here, what I see is a priest or a prophet who is not denying reality. Yes, yes. When things are bad, acknowledge that it's not good, right? Mm. When, when When your life is in a season, like the Enneagram talks about seasons of growth or seasons of stress. When you're in a season of growth, own it. Be okay saying that it's good, even if other things are going wrong. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to say what is good because for the people who things are going wrong for, they need us to talk about that things can be good. Yes. They yes. need to hear that. And rejoice then, with those who rejoice, right? Rejoice right. with those who rejoice. And I think the clue, you always talk about trying to find a clue in a text. And I think for me, whether you're reading this text devotionally or whether you're leading a group or whether you're going to preach on a Sunday, when you hear the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. To me, everything hinges right there. Like he changes his tone. He begins to intercede after he says that. Mm-hmm. And what I hear there is a person saying, we had a good season. That season has ended. It didn't do for us what I was hoping it would do for us. There are still problems. But I think 
you can also say because he's acknowledging the changes of seasons, the summer is ended, we are not saved, but eventually you'll get to, you know, Song of Songs where it says, lo, the winter has passed, yes, right? right? And right. I think it's incumbent, it's our part of our responsibility as Christians is to not speak in finalities, but to mine mm. out and find hope. Yes, yes, and we find that hope largely through the weeping, right? Largely through, you know, at the end of that Jeremiah passage, when, when he hears the cry of the people, he is moved to this deep compassion, moved you by this find hope in weeping, right? That's the only place to, because yeah. when it's healed, you don't need the hope. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> I mean, so like pain, we have to be able to look through and navigate through pain. I think there's a lot of people who, they want to acknowledge pain in the other, but they don't want to feel it because there's this sense that like, I worked really hard yes. for the good season I'm in and I don't want it to get tainted or I don't want to catch that cold of your pain. Or it may make me feel guilty about the good season that I'm in when I acknowledge that my next door neighbor is in a horrific one. Mm -hmm. And I just think like a text like Isaiah, uh, like Jeremiah here, just sitting with it, and understanding that number one, if you're looking for a place to start in the chaos of what is good and what is bad in the world, start with telling the truth. My, my spiritual director always says, prayer is telling God what it's like to be you right now. Just telling the truth about the situation and then letting the spirit work from there. Like we worship him in spirit and in truth, there's like a transcendence, but then there also has to be a, a an acceptance of reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. simplifying that. Yeah, I mean, and uh, acceptance of reality is key, like coming to terms with it, like coming to terms with reality, and that that that's what weeping makes possible. Like that's what the gift of tears makes possible. It's cleansing us so that we we can come to terms with. Jesus Christ and the real, which frees us both from radicalism and compromise, right? From magical thinking and pseudo-realistic thinking that ties us back to this very, to this moment and these people, to life as, as it actually is for us. And I, it reminds me of the Psalm, right? Weeping endures for the night, joy comes in the morning. So weeping is, is about opening that space, the Holy Saturday space, Bill, as you said, that Holy Saturday space in which we are gestating for, for what is to come. Like what is, what is going to be the joy of the morning is taking shape in us in the night as we come to terms with reality. You know, I mean, I think we could say like on a very mystical level, but I think it's important that one of the ways we remember our baptism is by letting the waters of our baptism come up out of our eyes. Mm. When we, when we see, yes. uh, the the when we see more need for baptism like our leaders need to be baptized in a new way of viewing the world right and the powers and the systems they need to be baptized into the father the son and the holy spirit and if to what to whatever extent we can't cry or weep with the needy our baptism has turned into a drought like our garments have gone dry like we need to be redipped and sometimes weeping with those who weep dips us back into our baptism again Yes, man. Yeah, absolutely. And that that notion of what I mentioned a moment ago, the gift of tears, Maggie Don, not Maggie Don, Maggie Ross has, I got Marva Don and 
Maggie Ross confused, has, has a book about the gift of tears and pointing to just to this point, Bill, that there has to be a purging, a cleansing that comes in weeping with those who weep. And I think we can add to that weeping with those who are rejoicing, weeping for those who are rejoicing when they should be weeping. Come on. So we have to weep with those who weep, but we also have to know what it's like to weep for those who should be weeping and can't, are not able yet. And all of that's rooted in that differentiation, right? Jeremiah's ability not to be taken up over by his people's sorrow, but also not to be cut off from it, right? He's not swallowed by their grief, and yet he's present to it. This actually, so this reminds me of something, Chris. Um, I think y'all, you and Father Kenneth Tanner ended up doing Jensen, Robert Jensen's last interview. It wasn't, uh, at least it wasn't long before he passed away. Right. Um, and in that interview, he, you were talking about suffering um, and God's suffering or how to even speak intelligibly about God's suffering. And he had this line where he's talking about in Jesus and he says, um, God suffers, but doesn't suffer the fact that he suffers. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's, what's the connection? I mean, maybe break that down for us a little bit, but then also what's the connection from that to what, what we're talking about here? Yeah. So this is theologically, the church has traditionally held that God is impassable, that he does not change and that he does not suffer change. Like no, nothing in, in the language of St. Maximus, nothing happens to God. God happens to everything. And I, I think Jensen wants to affirm that, but to insist that we have to ask how that is configured around the story of Jesus, this one who does grow, who does change, who does suffer and die. And in that changing, in that growth, in that suffering, in that death, reveals God to be who God is and enacts God's goodness in the world. So what, what Jensen does is drawing on origin, because origin talks about, about this in, in similar terms. The, the phrase from origin is, even the father is not impassable. And what, what origin seems to be saying there is a kind of double negative. Jensen picks up on this, that it's not that the father simply suffers like we suffer, because then he wouldn't be God. But it's not that he cannot be touched by what touches us, because then he wouldn't be our God. Right. And so Jens picks that up and says this, gets, develops this formulation. God does not suffer the fact that he suffers. So he suffers, but he suffers in ways that, do, that do, doesn't change him. It changes what he's suffering. So what, what I've come to say from that, drawing on origin, drawing on Jensen, is that nothing happens to Jesus except what he wants to happen differently for us. Mm. Right. So he he submits to these experiences. He lets things happen to him, but they're changed by what happens. He's not changed. So, you know, in that image of he goes down into the waters of baptism, but he's not changed, right? John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, but Jesus is not repenting. Jesus is changing the water. The water repents when Jesus enters it. And as, as the fathers will say, I think it's John of Damascus that I'm quoting here. 
like John the Baptist is baptized when he puts his hand on Jesus. Come on. Love it. Right. Jesus is not the one being baptized. He's the baptizer. Right. And or he is being baptized, but in his being baptized, he is baptizing. Nothing happens to him, but what he wants to happen differently for us. And that includes the weeping and the rejoicing. And Jesus' life is, of course, the, the interweaving of that, weeping when he should be weeping, rejoicing when he should be rejoicing, and both at the same time. Like his heart is, is filled both with the sorrow and the joy. And that, that's what we're called to. And if we live in reality, as opposed to radically, to the radicalism that Bonhoeffer talks about or the compromise that Bonhoeffer talks about, which is a, a pseudo-realism, we will, we will find that that's true. Right, that we are both weeping and rejoicing both both at once. So I think the we can live that. And this goes, Bill, to your point about people who are afraid to feel compassion, who are afraid to to face the brokenness of the world and all of its gone wrongness, because they're afraid that they will lose touch with what brings them joy. You know, if I if I weep with those who weep, I won't be able to rejoice. Right. Like it'll somehow it'll it'll ruin my day to put it. To put yeah. it too simply, but that mentality, like the almost the, the wickedness actually that comes from it's like so if if Jens if Jensen can say God doesn't suffer the fact that he suffers, I think we can say of us, we will suffer the fact that we refuse to suffer mm. yes. those who are suffering. And I think that yeah, yeah, I think like a pastoral point of view for this would be to the person who has been taught or formed to work very hard to follow christian principles so that their life is free of pain mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that person needs to realize you can you can step into the waters of somebody else's suffering a silly example would be a, you know a lifeguard going into a stormy sea to grab somebody out of it like the lifeguard is not suffering like the drowning person is suffering but they're they're in it in a way that they can help bring some sort of redemption to the person who's suffering, but they got to get out from underneath that umbrella. <laughs> they got to get yes. into the water they may not want to be in. And I think what will happen is anything in our life that is righteous and whole will remain righteous and whole, even if we get completely messy in the suffering of others. Absolutely. Anything in our life that seems like precious stones, but really it's wood, hay, or stubble, that will get ruined. Yep. when we open the door for the suffering of others to come into our life and it should get ruined and we should be, we will be blessed and we won't suffer the fact that that was ruined. Yep. So I think we should be very, I think what, what Jensen said is very encouraging for, for me as a pastor, for people who are wanting to, to identify with the other, your life will not get worse if you join and identify, like, like Dr. King said, don't, don't feel bad for me, feel bad with me. Yes. You'll never feel bad the way that I'm feeling bad. He's saying, yeah, but I want you to, I want you to feel bad for that with me. Yeah. Hurt for the hurt. Yes. Hurt for the hurt. And if that messes up your day, then the things that got messed up should have gotten messed up a long time ago. And you, you can, you can feel confident about that. Yeah. Yeah. That that's a, that's a purging that's the, to go back to the baptism in imagery. That's the washing away of those things from our lives that shouldn't be there in the first place. The flood that 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 rids us of attachments we sh we shouldn't have. So I, I want to come to the gospel text, but first I want I want to look at the ways in which the Psalms this week 
point us to this reality of, of God's identification with the poor and how that helps us think about our relationship to those in power, to those who are to, to the wealthy, but also to those who are positioned to make decisions for everybody else, and how we pray for those who are in power. So in Psalm 113, well, let's just start in verse four. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who sits enthroned on high, but stoops to behold the heavens and the earth. He takes up the weak out of the dust and lifts up the poor from the ashes. He sets them with the princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the woman of a childless house to be a joyful mother of children. So you, at first we start with this image of God at the height of the heights, right? So God at the, at the peak of power. But immediately the psalm says, but that's, that's not who God is. God is the God who identifies with the weak, with those who bring, who've been brought down to the dust. God is a God of dust and ashes. And this is the God who establishes his own order. He sets these whom he raises up into princely positions. But how does he do it? Right to your point, Bill, not just what needs to be done, but how it needs to be done. How does God establish us and set us with princes, set us in heavenly places? He does it by making the childless a mother. And this, this is the God who creates from nothing. This is the God who raises the dead, right? So this is Christmas. Mary is a virgin, and suddenly she is with a child, right? Without any cooperation of any other human being, without a man, without seed, she is with child. Right? The, the motherless is now with child, now a mother. And Holy Saturday, which we mentioned a couple of times, is, is another enactment of that moment. The nothingness that death has brought about, right? Become the tomb of Jesus becomes the womb for Jesus, and he's born again, right? This is Easter. So I think we, we have to recall that the God with whom we have to do, right? The God who's at work in us and at work in those people we love is the God who creates from nothing, the God who raises the dead, the God who does not suffer the fact that he suffers. And therefore, when he comes alongside us in our suffering, our suffering doesn't define us. Right? It doesn't get the last word on who we are. And if we come alongside those who are suffering, we get to speak that word of hope to those who, who are in pain so that they're, they know that in the dust and ashes, they're, they're meeting the God who is dust. God who is ashes. I think like even there, like, so it talks about how ascended he is. And then it talks about how he reaches down into the dust. Right. And it's like, mm -hmm. again, to whatever extent you want to claim and declare and testify as to how blessed and right and good your life is, you are give. it's almost like Jesus saying, okay, fine. Can you drink that cup? Yeah. Because that means that you are now well equipped to step down from that you have you have the stuff and the resources to mm -hmm. step down from that and reach down to people who don't yes yeah absolutely that, that's what has to happen when you like when you when you post that instagram post about oh you know coffee on the deck life is so blessed in that <laughs> moment that you did that you also just said today my job is to step down and bring this to somebody who doesn't have it yeah that that this kind of this kind of peace and this simple joy is possible for all of us. And if it's yeah. not happening for you right now, 
I want to be present in whatever way I can to, to make space for that to happen. Absolutely. Look at the other Psalm really quickly before we come to the gospel. Psalm 79. I didn't notice this last night when we were talking, but this, this is really striking. I think re related to our, the conversation that's unfolding here. So this is a Psalm of complaint, lament, protest, an imprecation. So it begins with this recounting of what the heathen have done. Oh God, the heathen have come into your inheritance. They have profaned your holy temple. They have made Jerusalem a heap of rubble. They have given the bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the air, the flesh of your faithful ones to the beasts of the field. And there's, there's no one to bury all of these bodies that have been left in Jerusalem. But then notice verse four, we have become a reproach to our neighbors, an object of scorn and derision to those around us. So there is a way, of course, in which this is, this is a perfectly faithful prayer. There's another way in which I'm hearing this tone of we're talking to God as if God has been shamed, when really what we're feeling is our own embarrassment. Mm. Right? God, you have been blasphemed. That's the prayer. But the heart of that prayer is I feel that I've been exposed. Right. And out of that, out of that, we have become a reproach to our neighbors. There, there's this question to God, put to God, how long will you be angry? Will your fury blaze like fire forever? The assumption is, God, this has happened to us because you're angry with us, right? Which is a kind of accusation. God, you've, your, your temple has been profaned because of your anger at us. Like you, you've exposed yourself, God, by letting yourself be angry with us. Put your wrath on those people, not on us. Pour out your wrath on them, not on us. On the heathen, not on the faithful. That's the next question. And what strikes me about it, what I'm what I'm seeing now for the first time, is how inseparably inseparably bound up are our assumptions about God's anger toward us and our desire for God to be angry at others. That if we want God to be angry with our enemies, it's because we fear that God is angry with us. We're just trying to redirect the anger. Listen, but notice, I have yeah. to tell everybody I'm about to run around the church for one second. I'm I just <laughs> me. It's my I'm. Like I said, I have problems sitting still. Chris Brewer sits still. I thought his screen froze three times. I'm having trouble sitting still. Chris, continue. I'm sorry, man. I'm just, if you see me leave, it's just because I'm going to jog around the church and then come back. So what, so what you have here, very similar to the passage you read from the, from the prayer book, is you get a kind of development, right? So it starts out, it's this kind of accusation against God in a sense, and then that it shows itself, like it kind of betrays itself as a fear of God's anger. And that's verse eight, remember not our past sins, let your compassion be swift to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, our Savior. And what's I think is so clear in light of the other text, in light of the gospel, is that the compassion of God, of course it meets us when we are very low. That's where the compassion of God begins. It begins in dust and ashes. It begins in the nothingness before creation and the nothingness that death brings the, 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 the nothingness that death brings about, trying to undo our createdness. So in, in even in this psalm and the and the other one, we're, we're thinking in terms of ascendancy and descendancy, right? That God, the incarnation is movement from on high to what's beneath. 
But in fact, God's compassion comes from beneath, right? God's compassion meets us most swiftly when we are very low. And this is exactly what Mary's song says, right? God has looked on the lowliness of his servant, right? God's work doesn't trickle down from the top. It begins with those who are in dust and ashes. It begins at the bottom. And it's, it's a work that grows from within our sorrow rather than a work that descends from above on us. And once we recognize that about this God, we know that this is who God is, then we don't have to be afraid of being brought low. Right? God gives grace to the humble because that's where his grace is operative. And one of the ways then we pray for those who are in power is that they won't lose touch with their own lowliness and the lowliness of the people they have to care for. I mean, in that respect, then, you know, the, like, even something like, like the Magnificat, right? Yep. Mary's song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it speaks to, it speaks to, in a way that perhaps we're not trained to hear it, even the goodness of God, Right. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty, which is, which is to say God's committed to doing this work to all people. That's right. And so if you think about that line brought the powerful down from the thrones, like there are two ways that can be true. They can come down from their thrones to care for those who are lowly. They can choose to, to lay aside their supposed dignity. And I and listen to what their supposed subjects are saying, or if they refuse to do that, then their sins will find them out, and the the injustice that they create by their indifference will will bring judgment down on them and on the kingdoms they have made. So they'll come down from their throne one way or another, right? Either in ways that are true and real, or they're eventually the collapse of the of the abstractions and false and false idols false images that they've made that and, and projected but one way or another they will come down from the throne and when the rich are sent away empty like again that can be heard either of those ways as a kind of banishment slash condemnation or as a mission that they're sent on mission and that, that where are they going to find what will fill them only when they're sent away from the the vacuum that is the world mammon has created from the emptiness mm. that mammon creates they're sent away they're empty because of what mammon has taken from them so if they're sent away from that in, in, emptiness they're sent toward fullness which they're going to find in the dust and the ashes they're going to find in the presence of God amongst the least of these, right? Which is precisely what Matthew 25 tells us. Bill, you want to add anything to that before we go to the gospel? No, it's just the hope that, uh, and we'll talk about Mary's song a little bit more now that we already did this once. I know what's going to happen. Um, we, uh, there, you trust us a lot. If you, if you think that it's predictable, 
that just because we said something last night that made sense, we're going to say it again. I should have known you enough to know that if I said that, you would make sure it didn't happen. So that's on me. <laughs> that is 100% on me. I think, like, because as you're talking, I'm just, I'm sitting here realizing I can't get away from myself that, like, I am, if I'm being honest, part of that, whatever, the wealthy 2%, right? <laughs> Maybe not the 1%, but definitely the 2 or 3%, right? And the, the, what, what may, what my hope is, is that like, I'm sitting here saying to myself while you're talking, I don't know that I have it in me to come down off of what yeah. I have and live that life. Right. Yeah. And Mary's song, it says that the, that the lofty will be brought low, but she also says that the lowly will be lifted up again. And so like my hope for all of us is that like in the areas of my life where I don't choose to come down from that high position that when God brings me down off of it, that somehow I'll then be the lowly that he brings back up to a more healthy, holistic way of viewing that. Right. So he'll take me down so that I could fall to becoming the lowly. And then probably even the lowly will be interceding for me because that's how righteous they are. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, and somehow I can, I can be brought back up in, in a way that is meaningful for the kingdom for the gospel. So I'm, I'm sitting here saying, Lord, you know, I, I won't, I won't be able to do all of this. Mm-hmm. So when you do take me down, <laughs> I'm glad that her song says that there's a chance I could be lifted back up again. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and real, yes, but also realizing that being brought down doesn't mean what we fear it means. Right. We, we hear that and we think, oh, God is going to, humiliate me i mean i remember i mean the churches i grew up in wildly wildly pentecostal the sweaty pentecostalism i grew up in i was scared to death of a prophetic word that was going to expose me in front of everyone you know that if god were to speak to me in front of everyone else it would be you know i, I would die from embarrassment and i feared the judgment of god for that same reason i mean i i had internalized this thought that the last judgment is essentially God replaying my entire life, including the worst moments on some massive screen for the whole created universe to watch, mm. right? Here, here's the, the, the ugly truth of Chris's life. And, and what under, you know, what lay behind that was this assumption that if God were to tell the truth about me, I would be ashamed. But the fact is, if God tells the truth about me, I'm glorified with his own glory. Hey, Chris. Um, so I, I didn't say this. Well, you didn't you didn't say that yesterday. And I that reminded me one like my third time at the church. I'm now pastoring. I, I was called up to the front with a whole bunch of other kids and, you know, classic Pentecostal, the, the guy's going down and he's calling everybody out and as a kid you're like oh my god like whatever you pick is not going to be good and when he got to me he says please shut my microphone off (laughs) and I'm like oh no it's worse than I thought and then he put both of his hands on my shoulders and he said you know and I said yes and he goes the lord knows and I said yes and he says he says the lord forgives you Mm. and I swear to this day, I'm like, I would have said that out loud into the microphone because I would have wanted people to hear me say that. Yeah. 
but he made private what I was hoping would be public, right? <laughs> but the thing is, there was something, there was something about the mercy he showed in that moment that did more for me than if he actually said the specifics of the scenes, yeah. right? It was the, mm -hmm. it was the covering that actually brought me lower mm -hmm. than an embarrassment would have been. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Because the lower to which it brought you, the lower to which the Lord's word actually brings us is in fact the height where he is enthroned, right? Everything is turned upside wow. down, right? This is the kingdom that's upside down. So when God's word brings us low, that is exalting us Good into Lord. his exaltation. Come now on. we're enthroned where Christ is enthroned, but Christ is enthroned in dust and ashes. Mm. That That's what we're missing. Christ is enthroned where we would think there is embarrassment and shame, self-doubt, self-hatred. There is, in fact, glory and honor. And th that's because Christ has enacted enacted that. And the, the, the balm that's in Gilead is is tied to the to the tears that, that, that we weep right when we're with those who who feel god forsaken so i do hope i'm around when the bomb in gilead goes off <laughs> yes i have to tell that story before we come to the gospel text oh ollie's here say hello ollie he's just waking hear? up so i don't know if he's gonna say anything he he's so cute gosh Nothing yet, just breathing. Just I bet if he breathing. were a regular, I bet if he were a regular on this podcast, um, we we would uh, we would immediately see a growth in our listening audience. Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> he knows how to be overjoyed. I have no mm. doubt. I've seen him. He smile. does, man. This is a happy baby. This That's child wakes up happy. So the before we come to the gospel text, really quickly for those who don't know what bill is referencing so when i was this was you know the late 90s some sometime we're at church it's mother's day and it's a, it's a small pentecostal church and we've bust in folks from nearby elders care facility and nearby apartments so there are more visitors there than there are home folks as we used to say and it's mother's day so we're giving a, a rose to every mother and a microphone so they can say what they want to say about their children and this one woman who I've never seen since and never had seen her before this moment, she gets the mic. And it's pretty clear that she doesn't want to talk about her kids. And it doesn't take long for us to figure out she's afraid of the coming of Jesus. She's afraid of the rapture. She's afraid of the end of time. And she's come to church to get right. She wants to get right before, before everything goes wrong. And at the very end, she said, at the very end of her talk, which went on for a little while, she said, I just, I just don't want to be here when the bomb in Gilead goes off. And man, everybody was death. Like nobody laughed because nobody knew what to make of what she had said. But since then, I've become convinced that we were entertaining angels unaware that that was some kind of like cosmic joke on us that like, you know, in the choir's of angels there was they're watching us and seeing what we're teaching about the end times and they're like we guys we gotta we gotta do this so the bomb in gilead going off you were entertaining angels and she was an entertaining angel <laughs> she's one of my favorite people of all time i wish so well i mean i don't know what would happen if i could hear her full story but 
Yeah, she's a legend to me. And the only thing wrong with it is I want to be around when that bomb <laughs> yeah, goes off. You definitely want to be around when the bomb in Gilead goes off. That's exactly right. Okay, let's come to the let's come to the gospel text. Darn and it. as you said, Bill, I think we we're we're pretty we fret about this text. And as we discussed last night, I think we fret about it because of our middle class values because of the ways in which our imaginations are not shaped to the gospel. And, and what tells the truth about that is that we keep telling ourselves, we keep telling others that Jesus is a simple teacher and the parables are clear and accessible, that the plain sense of the parables show us, give us principles for living well. But in fact, Jesus is not a not a simple teacher. Nothing he says is simple. It's clear in that he he speaks his mind and speaks the heart of God. It's clear, but it's never simple. And it's never plain to us because our own imaginations are not opened. Our hearts are not opened to, to the truth yet. That's why he speaks the way that he does. So I think, and why we and why we hear it the way that we do. But let's let's talk a little bit about the ways in which our what I just called middle-class values are kind of the way we've been Americanized into the workforce and into a morality that has a lot to do with social and political and economic realities and very little to do with the realities of the kingdom, how that is distorting our reading of this text. Well, Brewer, do you want to, do you want to jump in there? Oh, okay. He's Okay. He's being a good dad right now. Um, starting in verse 10, I think it starts, I think that reading starts in verse 10, where it says, whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful mm -hmm. in much. Whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with what, with the dishonest wealth, which I think is a, since yesterday, it's a very interesting phrase. Yes. Who will entrust you with the true riches. And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, which is a, again, very interesting, who will give you what is your own. And I think we've read this transactionally because of our middle class yes. upbringing, where it's like, if I can be faithful with a little, God will give me more. Mm -hmm. Right. And I even, I, I'm not going to say who it was, but a very, very popular TV pastor who's still very popular in our country. He said, you know, Solomon asked God for wisdom and God gave him money. So if you want more wealth, you need wisdom. Mm. Mm. And it's like it, that, that is death on every single conceivable <laughs> yes. level. It yes. is, it's God throwing up his hand saying, I can't like, there's mm. just, so I think we have a transactional mindset. So we're reading the text saying, what is Jesus giving me to do so that I can keep what I have or get more of it? Yes. I think that's how we approach yep. this parable. And I think that's why I'm realizing now, like, you know, 12 hours removed from the last time we talked about it, we read it saying, what is, what are you, what's the formula you're giving me here mm -hmm. so that I can not feel guilty about what I have and even maybe get more of it? Yeah. Yeah. So if yeah, exactly, I think, and I know not everyone listening to this podcast has the same story so for those of you for whom this doesn't apply just intercede for us for those of whom it does 
but I, th I think we, the, these middle class values that we're talking about, that we, our imaginations have been shaped to make us think that we exist right in the middle ground between the powerful, the rich, the elite, and the poor. And at the bottom of that mountain, right? So we're kind of halfway up this, halfway up the scale. <clears throat> Without realizing it, I think we've internalized a, a way of seeing the world that tells us that those who are at the top have a position we should have, but they've been unfaithful with it by and large. Like, so it's, there's nothing wrong with being at the top of the mountain. The problem is just who is there or how they're being there. But the people at the bottom should not be there. Like that, that's a result of their own sin. Yep. And it's a result of their, their failure to be faithful. That we are faithful, but we're on our way to the top of that mountain. We're, we're going to follow God and he's going to lead us to the top. If we follow his principles, if we stay committed to obeying his teaching given in the scriptures, we will will arrive there at the top, right? But what that does, I mean, I think that's utterly wrong, but part of what that does is position us to always think transactionally. How do I hear what Jesus is saying, or how do I read what scripture is saying in such a way that I can make that next step up the mountain, make that next step toward the position of privilege, right? But as, I, as I've said, you know, recently in a conversation with you, like we have to come back again and again and again to that distinction between privilege and fortune and the blessing of God. And that, that, that scale of things, you know, a top of privilege, the, the base where the poor are there because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience, who, those who've wasted their substance, like the prodigal, like we, we end, we end up there because we've been lied to about what our lives are supposed to mean, right? And I think without realizing it, the Christianity that shaped us has been shaped, misshaped into a, a morality for productivity. Well, How do you make so that your lives work? I'm sorry, Chris. No, 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 go, go. We see that even in the way we handle the spiritual gifts, right? Yes. Where like we handle the spiritual gifts the same way we handle our money in that I want more of it so that I can be more, as you and Brad Jersak were talking about, so I could be more grandiose, so I could have more yes. grandiosity. And so it's never the shut the microphone, hey, you know, yes, I know moment that we want. It's the into the microphone, I'm the one who said this, or I'm the one who predicted the next six months of the church writer. I'm the one who gave that person that word that led them to Christ. And it's like, we do with morality and spiritual gifts, the same thing that we do with money. We want more so that yep. we can be, we say it so that we can have a greater effect, but really it's so that we can be more seen. That's why mm. everyone wants to teach the small group and no one wants to go to it in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's a pastor's concern right there. No, Good yeah, Lord. yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, there's an, an epidemic, right, of that desire for privilege and this lust for fortune where we want, and I, I mean fortune, both in the sense of wealth and in the sense of good luck. But the way of God, the way of blessing just doesn't have to do with fortune or privilege, right? God is not privileged. God is blessed. And the providence of God is not about fortune, ill or, or good. The providence of God is about the care, the loving care, the loving kindness of God 
coming to bear in our day-to-day lives. And this parable, I think, is actually, it only seems to be difficult because our middle-class morality is telling us you have to be a good, dependable worker in order to eventually get promoted to be the boss. Right? Mm. We, we don't know what to make, we don't know how to make sense of Jesus praising this man who's not playing by the rules. But I think the key is, you pointed this out already, there are three details in this text I want to highlight really quickly. One is that phrase, dishonest wealth. And as you said, all wealth in this world is dishonest. That is going to make people, because we're going to say that on Sunday, so please pray for me. We're going to say that on Sunday out loud into a microphone on the internet. But that's where verse 14, I, I whoever did the lectionary, you're killing me. You should have added verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all this and they ridiculed him. Like, yes. whatever we say about this parable should call up that response in the parts of us that don't want to let go of the control and the options that wealth or accumulation bring. And mm-hmm. so like, when you say what you just said, all wealth that we're dealing with, like if you hold up a $100 bill, it's not honest anymore. It's not backed by the gold that it once was backed by, right? It, yeah. they're, they're, they're inflated lies to begin with. Like there is no currency that's mm-hmm. actually true. Well, right, because that's it's- how you want to place it. That's right. And it's that dishonesty works at multiple levels in that there's there's not only the way in which money is already- a symbol system that has lies built into it, but it's also a way in which it's dishonest because it's not bringing about justice. It's not bringing about the equality and mutuality that God wants us to have. It becomes a symbol of the difference between me and you, not between, not the identification that God has brought about between us. So I think, yeah, we've got to stress that point first, all wealth, is dishonest wealth, but there is a way to be faithful with it, right? There is a way to be faithful with dishonest wealth. And I think if we go back to Bonhoeffer's categories, radicalism can say, yes, all wealth is dishonest, but then it shirks the responsibility of being faithful with it. Whereas compromise wants to say there is wealth that is not dishonest. If I'm faithful with it, it's no longer dishonest wealth, right? And the truth is it's all that's not translating into the kingdom of God, right? When God's when God is all in all and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not going to be have different bank accounts. Right? We're not going to be marked by privilege and fortune anymore, separated, stratified by economic differences. And that it tells us what we need to know, right? That that that's not when justice is really done. Wealth as we know it is is done away with, right? When blessing is established, privilege is disestablished. But I want to draw attention not only to this being faithful with dishonest wealth, but also this, and you you mentioned it as well, you have to be faithful with what belongs to another so that you can be given what is your own. And again, rather than hearing that as, okay, I start out by being humble so that God can exalt me to a position of power and I can be proud, right? Or I start out poor, but if I'm faithful to God's principles, God will make me rich. The point there is I'm caring for things that are not mine. And if I do that in ways that are true to Christ, that becomes mine. Like that very care is the way in which I find myself. And that brings me to the third passage, the third aspect of this passage I want to highlight. And that is 
what Jesus says earlier in the parable, earlier in the teaching, when he says the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. The children of this age, that's a generation. They, they, they are sourced in the principalities and powers of this fallen world. But the children of light are sourced not in the fallenness of the world, but in the immutability, the fidelity of God, right? So to be a child of light is to be of a different generation, to be differently generated. But we need shrewdness either way. So there's a, a worldly shrewdness that this servant shows in the, in the story in which he knows how to break the rules in order to win the game, right? He, he finds a way to manipulate the circumstances so that he comes out on top. Jesus is praising the shrewdness that's called for, but insisting that there's a shrewdness that belongs to the children of light that his disciples have not yet learned. And, and remember, this is a parable to the disciples. Yep. They haven't learned to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Right. And go back again, I'm going to come right back to Bonifer. Like radicalism says we should be doves, not serpents. Compromise says we have to be serpents, and that means we can't be doves. But Jesus shows we are to be serpents and doves, absolutely harmless, and yet cunning, clever, shrewd. And what does it look like to live faithfully with dishonest wealth? It means to use God's shrewdness in ways that save people from the crushing wheel of fate, that save people from the turning of the powers and principalities that make the world go round. And that is what Jesus does when he heals. That's what Jesus does when he turns water to wine. That's what Jesus does when he walks on water or when he casts the demons into the pigs. I mean, over and over and over again, Jesus is shrewdly setting people free from the powers and principalities and the use they're trying to make of people so that they can live the lives they're meant to live, right? He's humanized this is what Rebecca's doing when she somewhat shrewdly makes sure uh, Isaac blesses the one that God said to bless and send him on his way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this is, this is a story that shows up over and over and over and over again in scripture stories like Tamar who tricks Judah into yeah. blessing her. Right. Or the, story of Esau who tricks his father into or Jacob who tricks his father into blessing him like there these stories sometimes it's it's praised and sometimes it's condemned but what's shown is this need to be subversive subversive right to act in in ways that bend or break the rules to bring about what it is that God wants done in the world and or what you want done in the world and what makes the difference between the children of this age and the children of light is the children of this age are shrewd but they still want what the powers of evil tell them they should want. They're still driven by the fear of death and therefore by the love of money. But children of light are poor in spirit, are meek. They mourn. They're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And because they have the heart of Mary, and because they have the heart of Mary, then their shrewdness is not, bringing, is not driven by the fear of death or the love of money. It's driven by the love of life right? Love of the life that God has made for us and is, is moved by the fear of the Lord. But, but shrewdness is, is essential, right? I think the, that's, I, and that's almost always lost on us because that's not the way 
that's not a middle-class virtue, right? That kind of shrewdness seems to us sketchy. And I think that's why we we balk at this text. But our imaginations need that conversion. Share, Bill, share with us what Jacqueline said about the parable of the... Yeah, so so this is, uh, you know, th this is how, like what, what, uh, my, what, what Jacqueline said, just so everybody knows Jacqueline is the one whom I have the privilege to be married to these 12 years. Um, she, she was talking about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And we were having a discussion. We were like driving someplace and we were having a discussion and I'm, I'm working on that. I'm talking that parable out loud to her from that middle-class unconscious perspective about, you know, what it means to just do our work and not consider what other people are doing and like do our work to our own hurt and honoring our agreements and, you know, basic stuff like that. And, and like normal, she's listening to me probably like flush, flush, flush every time I say something. And then she's, she's quiet for a while. And she says, what I think is one of one of the coolest takes on this parable I've ever heard. She said, she said, it just hit me. We're reading the parable from the perspective of the people who got picked to mm. go work in the field. Yep. And she said, imagine, you know, uh, the, this guy who owns a, a vineyard, he walks by early in the morning and he chooses the best, most able-bodied people to come into his vineyard for the day. And then at the very end, he says, in the last hour of the day, he says to those who are still in the market square, he says, why are you still here? And they say, we've been idle all day because no one has hired us. Mm. And Jacqueline said, they're the ones who probably, you know, are presenting that they're not able to work in a field. They're not able to bear the burden of the day. And every day they're going to be the last ones picked for the team. Yeah. And she said, this isn't a parable about how to work in the field. This is a parable about how to see the least of these and yeah. give them what the world is not giving them. Yeah. And I was just, again, like, you know, uh, I'm senior chemical, I passed out in the car and almost went off the road. <laughs> Dangerous. So that, right. But that, I think I mean, that's, that's, that's exactly the insight. That's this parable. Like it begins with, there is a rich man. And we know that in chapter 12, Luke has already uh, had Jesus tell a parable of a rich man. So I don't want to say, adversary but he's not the good guy in the story no right there, there, yeah i mean I, i'm sorry chris no you're you're good i was just going to add that luke luke's gospel is always telling us about the rich and they're always problematic it's always problematic to be rich i mean jesus is the one who said it's not it's not impossible because well it is impossible but with god all things are possible but it's incredibly difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And Luke's gospel, as well as Acts, is constantly reminding of that, reminding us of that. But part of what we need to come to terms with, and I think this, you know, Jacqueline's insight is so helpful to this end, is that we've been convinced that it is possible to serve God in wealth. I mean, Jesus, you know, the, the passage this week, the gospel ends with, you cannot serve God in mammon. But we've been Christianized to think you can. That if you're faithful in just the right way, you can serve God in wealth, or at least you can serve God in such a way that will make you wealthy, which is exactly the kind of thing Mammon wants you to think. And we we need to think seriously, prayerfully about why do we think that? Who has convinced us that you can have those things together? And the answer is, of course, ultimately our enemy. But 
more approximately, it's the people who benefit from our working. Those structures, not the people so much as the structures that benefit from our productivity, those structures are the ones that benefit from us thinking you can serve God and wealth. But what we need is to be liberated from that. And one of the ways we get liberated from it is whom we identify with. I mean, what Jacqueline is doing in that in that reading is she's not accepting her instinct to identify with the healthy ones who are picked right. to do the work. She's identifying with those who are overlooked, with those who are discarded because they're not productive. The ones who can't do, you know, the depressed, the disabled, those who, the, the elderly, those who cannot do what needs to be done to get the work done. Like those are the one God, God's attention begins with. And I think, yeah, I mean, her, her reading, it's, it's not an accident that she's seeing it in ways that it's hard for us not to see. Because, you know, in our circles, she's closer to that experience than we are in many, in more often than not. And it like what, what struck, like what was hard for me about the parables, verse nine, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so mm-hmm. that when that wealth is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. And once, once she unlocked that insight, it's, it's very simple. Those of us who have as we're generous with this dishonest wealth, as we're generous, as we have open hands, uh, as you said when you preached at my church a few weeks ago, as we live in a blessed way with our fortune, yes, as we yes. live blessedly with our fortune, mm-hmm. and we we are we open the corners of our field minimum yep. to those who don't even have a field, they're the ones who are going to be letting us in one day. Like Jesus said, the last will be first. Absolutely. They're the ones who are going to be opening doors for us. And so it would be, it, it would be gospel mm-hmm. for us to treat them that way now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's recognizing, and that, that's part of what it means to be a, a child of light. I mean, just to cut to the chase, when we see those who are in prison now, those who are poor now, I mean, Bill, I think about that conversation you and I had when I was there with you about your time as an insurance adjuster. And the ways in which you were taught to filter yeah. those judgments, yep. which make a kind of sense according to the generation of this age, right? that there is a morality that is revealed in how people handle their money, but it's not the morality of the kingdom. It's not the holiness of God. That's right. It's the morality of a particular, I'm, I'm thinking about MLK. You mentioned him earlier, MLK's sermon in which he reads the letter from Paul to the American church. And he talks specifically about this very point. And those of you who haven't read it, I, I encourage you to look it up. You can find it easily enough. Just, just Google MLK, Paul's letter to the American church. And, and he, he talks specifically here about what a capitalist system does to our hearts, to our imaginations, when we don't hear it through the story of Jesus, when we don't recognize it with our imaginations opened by the gospel. And I, I mean, I think that's what this parable is calling us to, right? It's it's calling us to a conversion of imagination, a, a, an identification with those who are not picked, right? An identification with a kingdom that's an alternative to and subversive of the kingdoms of this world. And we can get there only to come back to the text we discussed earlier, 
only when we are weeping with those who weep and weeping for those who should be weeping. All right, we need to, we need to stop soon. Brewer, last words for you? No, no last words. Sorry, I've been kind of in and out with Ollie. Uh, but just grateful, just grateful for uh, the conversation, the chance to to talk with both of y'all. Yeah, it, thank you for thank you for being here. Thanks for making time for it, Bill. What about for you? I uh, when you when you study this parable out, there's a lot of different takes on what the quote unquote dishonest manager was doing when he said, "Oh, you owe you owe a hundred dollars, pay fifty. Uh, Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson has a good take on it where he said, uh, and he, he's honest, he says, of all the things I've heard, this is the one I'm going to go with, that the man wrote off his commission. Mm. He mm. wrote off what he would have gotten as commission. Yeah. Knowing that he's about to lose his job and these, these people are going to now be in his good graces. And I thought like of, of all the possibilities there, that's a good one. Like he, he, he brought what he owed his boss, but he wrote off what would have benefited him. Mm -hmm. And in turn, you know, made, made friends that, that, that kind of benevolence in some ways you could say that kind of almsgiving where he gave up what would have been, what would have been his, you know, just, just real quick. I'm, I'm when you were talking about fortune, I was thinking of Jesus Christ superstar where when the, the, the song where Pilate looks at Jesus and says, who is this broken man cluttering up my hallway? Mm. And then he says, who is this unfortunate? And his, his henchman says, someone Christ, King of the Jews. And I just saw how like the rich man sees Jesus as entirely unfortunate. Yeah. Because his view of fortune is entirely different, but Pilate should have known Jesus cluttering up his hallway is fortunate for Pilate. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, it, well, it, it is the blessing of God coming near to him in his misfortune that he thinks is his fortune. Yes. Right? Like, that's how God gets to him. And it's how God gets to all of us, right? Dust and ashes, that's how God is, is approaching us. And, you know, so the Ash Wednesday is shown to be one day with Christmas and Easter. Right? I mean, that's, that's where our God is operative. I, I think... This is an addendum to everything else we're saying, but I, I, I think the point Jesus is making stands no matter how you read what the servant did, right? So whether he was doing something very generous, writing off his own commission, or actually subverting, you know, falsifying the books, it, in, in terms of what Jesus is trying to get said, it doesn't matter. Because what Jesus is getting said is, that's a kind of shrewdness that belongs to this age. You need a shrewdness. That belongs to the age to come. Mm. And I think this parable is not obscure. Uh, even though we don't know exactly what the servant is doing, the point Jesus making is Jesus is making is clear. It only seems unclear because our our values are obscuring our vision. So good. All right, why don't you pray us out? Brewer, would you would you pray? Yeah, of course. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Gracious God, we thank you that you are trustworthy, and that you are good, and because of that, Lord, we can, we can enter into these passages 
that bear witness to your life with that kind of trust, that kind of boldness that says, we know that you're working in the midst of all of creation for the good of all of creation. So Lord, I pray with all, with and for all who might be listening and reading these passages, um, or that 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 goodness would take hold in our in our hearts and in our lives. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Blessings to you. I'll see you guys soon. We got Hebrews class in just a just a little bit. So talk to you soon. Adios.